please open to Romans chapter 13, and we will take all 14 verses today. And you see the title is called Believers in Society. Believers in Society. Now we see scripturally only three divinely ordained institutions given by God. One we see is the first institution is the family. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2. The second one is the government. We see that established in Genesis chapter 9. And the third institution is the church that we see in Acts 2. Three divinely institutions given by God and established by God and still operational and true today. Now there is an order and authority that God has given in each of those institutions. There has to be order in all three institutions, and there is a positions of authority that God places in those institutions to bring about what God wants to see in all three. Now today we're going to see, after discussing living that transformed life as a believer last week in chapter 12, we talked about living and functioning in the body of Christ and we saw how important it was that we there is authority within the body of Christ and that God has called you and I as believers to function a certain way within that body and to serve within that body with the gift or gifts he's given you for that purpose. Now Paul here in chapter 13 points out that the believers also has a function in society, especially regarding our government also regarding our neighbor, and also regarding our walk as believers in this society. And Paul will address how a believer is to be engaged in our culture today. So if you would follow along with me, we're going to start here in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, and we're going to take a look at how believers in society and how the government and us work together and how we are to work with the government in regards to that. And it says, Paul says here very clearly, let every soul, that means you and I, everybody, believers, non-believers, every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So it is God who established the governments of this world. Go back and even look and even clearer in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 28. And Paul says to believers and to non-believers, but to us as believers, that we are to be subject to higher authorities, for there is no person placed in a position of authority within the government that has not been ordained by God. That God has orchestrated and allowed for that persons or persons to be placed in these positions to have um, an oversight or to see how things should order run in an orderly um, and decent order fashion. To provide that necessary protection or necessary resources available for the, for the people. 
And because there is no authority except from God, that authority that they have is ordained by God. So it's not because they, they should not be coming in saying, I am who I am, and I am the power, and I am the one you worship, and I am the one that is going to control. If you have that prideful attitude, it's only a matter of time you're going down. But you should also you should recognize that God has allowed you to be in those positions of authority. So why do we ha need a government? God has established a human government because people out there today are sinners and must have boundaries and put, uh, put upon them or they will go astray. They'll go from a state of ideal to the state of chaos just like that. Just look at someone getting in a car today. If they got in their car, if there was not a boundary called speed limits, some people would go out into chaos. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Amen. The holy ground here. Okay, you're awake. This is good. So, um, so yes, speed limits is a very good example of, of God putting people in a position of authority and then putting some boundaries for our protection because there are some people, of course I'm not talking to you today, you follow the speed limit, you follow those rules, and you're not putting anyone else at risk because of your crazy driving. But others outside of this church, at other places, of course they're driving crazy. And they have to have boundaries or we'll be at risk in regards to our protection of our children and us. Now, establishing a fear of punishment is necessary. Because if we do not put a fear of punishment for those who are not motivated by the love of God or the fear of God... There's no, no one giving them accountability because they're not listening to the voice of God. They're not being governed by God. Then so God is going to appoint a, a positions of authority within the institutions, such as the government, to give a sense of fear of punishment if you do not follow order. A society must fear the, have that fear of authority, even though it is not the highest motivation for obedience, but is better than having chaos around us. It's so true in our family institutions. If you can, you, you, there's a fear of punishment a parent gives to a child, so that, oh, if mom and dad finds out, this would be bad news. Until they come to a point where they have understanding and that they realize that God sees all things, knows all things. He's everywhere and he speaks to mommies and daddies about everything. Then you don't have to have those tight boundaries and stuff. You can just say, well, God knows all things. What would God think about that? And they'll, oh, God, you're right. I, I, shouldn't be, I shouldn't be treating people like that. I shouldn't be doing those things. I shouldn't be taking those cookie crumbs when mom told me not to touch the, touch the cookies. God sees that, even though mom may not see it. It's the same thing here. The people who don't have a fear of God and have any recognition that God sees everything they do, there's got to be order or government authorities put in place or rules, regulations that we must follow. Now, you may not respect the person or persons who are 
put in existence of that, in that power, but you and I must realize that the Lord God has ordained him or her to be there and must respect the office anyway. We have a respect for the office of the presidency of the United States. We have a respect for the, pre, for the position of a mayor of a town. We have the respect of the position of, of, the, of the boss or the commander of whoever is the boss of our, our, our work. We may not respect the individual, but we do respect the position they have been allowed to be put in. Even during Paul's time, he was subject to the wicked man named Caesar Nero. He was writing this with one of the most wicked uh, leaders of the world. Think of Adolf Hitler, who was appointed and allowed to be in a position over a nation who was a wicked man. And God allowed it. But the next question people then ask is, how could a loving God allow a wicked man like Caesar Nero or Adolf Hitler to be put in positions of authority and power over other people if they're wicked men? Well, we may not fully understand why God does the things that he does. But think through historically, hindsight brings sometimes clarity for you and I. If you just take Adolf Hitler, well, the nation of Israel would have never come to, into an existence as a nation if it was not for the world to be sympathetic to the Jews because of Hitler's wicked holocaust against them. If you remember, it was World War II came to closure. The United Nations, or which is the new United Nations, was just born out of the League of Nations, came out and showed through all the world could see this atrocities, this horrible holocaust happening to these people, the Jews, and people sympathetic. They came together and through all that pressure said, we must allow Israel to have a place for them to dwell in safety. And so they amended the, 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 the rules and amended the establishment of this nation of Israel and passed Resolution 181, which recommended the partitioning of plan, which would divide the country into a Jewish state, the Arab state, and the UN-controlled territory around Jerusalem in there in Israel. And because of that, Israel was able to then declare themselves to be a nation on May 14, 1948, which was then the fulfillment of prophecy that we see in Ezekiel 40. So yes, God allowed Adolf Hitler to be a wicked man in a position of authority over a nation that would come against the world and have World War II to bring about God's prophecy that he was going to form a nation called Israel so that the Jews would have a homeland, and that is exactly what took place. Now, you and I can think of a whole other ways of doing that, but God's ways are his ways. And I don't even come close to try to think I already know everything he thinks or how he should think, let alone dictate how he should think and do. That'd be foolish of me. That's prideful to even think to tell God what he's going to do in my life or how he's going to play things out. That's just completely foolishness. But remember, the Lord knows where we are on the prophetic calendar, and he knows what certain events that will fulfill prophecy and usher in his coming and establish his kingdom forever. That is ultimately what it's all about, isn't it not? 
So we need to, by faith, acknowledge he might just know what he's doing and that we must trust him. That we may not understand what's happening around us in this circuit. Why could that person be put in a position that how can he or she been elected? Oh my gosh, this is great. Yet we realize ultimately Jesus is in control and that the authorities that exist are appointed by God and it's all part of his plan. It's his plan. And how wonderful that plan is. And so we must also acknowledge as believers we know that all of society will spiral downward and fall apart. It is part of what we can see clearly in the scripture is going to take place in the end times. Go back and read Matthew 24, verses 37 to 44, and somewhere in that area right there. Go back and read Matthew 24. Jesus said it was an inevitable. It would be like the days of Noah. And if you're studying the word of God, as you study the life of Jesus from the beginning to the end of his life, if you study the scriptures, if you study the epistles, you studied the book of Acts, everything points to the ultimate plan he has for the king, eternal kingdom to come for you and I. Everything is about eternity. It's not about the temporal here and now. Just go back and read the epistles, read the Acts. Paul encourages us through all of that that we are to focus as Christians, as the church, we are to focus not on how we can change this world temporarily, but our focus is to be on the kingdom eternally looking for Jesus' return. That is our focus. We're not getting a radio station up and running so that we can somehow change the culture so people will stop doing drugs. Yes, it will happen. People will be set free from drugs because they'll hear the word of God, they'll give their life to Christ, and God will come in and change their lives. We don't have a, a, a radio station to get people to understand that drunkenness is killing themselves and their families. That marriages are falling apart and all these other things. <clears throat> the word of God is going to change lives and get them to focus on <clears throat> not their flesh, not the temporal, not the things of this world they can get a hold of in their bucket list to fill and keep um, fill, you know, filling it up and, and doing it and filling it up again. But about eternal kingdom perspective. That Jesus is coming back very soon and, and soon and very soon to take us home to establish his kingdom. That is why we get the word out. That's why we come and gather in his name. It is not to get for some social gathering here. It's not some social club. It's not some programs. This is we gather together to study the word so that we can grow and encourage each other in the faith to be built up and equipped to go back out to spread the good news, the gospel, so that more will have the hope of eternal life. That they're not stuck in the miry clay that they find themselves in today, in darkness. Therefore, whoever re resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. God has appointed and placed certain people in authority. And so therefore, 
we must follow the regulation. We must follow the law, the things put in place to bring order in a society. Even the rules of a home need to be followed. They need to be established, they need to be taught, and then they need to be then, they need to follow through with it, and that means they need, there's punishment if they do not follow the rules. Until they learn, until they are, respond to the, the spirit of God in their lives to, to keep them on those bumpers of life. And if you do not establish rules, and you do not follow through with those rules, they will break those rules because we're all wicked sinners. Some have been saved by grace and some have not. And so it's important to have those rules. Does this mean we will never disobey those in authority over us? No, it does not mean that. We must always keep in mind Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, if you go back and you read Acts 5, you will see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, told Peter to stop talking about Jesus. But Peter and all the disciples, stop talking about Jesus. You got to stop. You, can't, you don't have, you can't do that. But Peter would and could not stop because he would be disobedient to God in spreading and sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He could not do it. He was compelled by God to do it. And there was no reason not to do it. But Peter was going to resist the authority because he was dealing with a spiritual issue, not a political issue here. And there are times when we are not to be subject to those in authority. Just like a wife in a, in a marriage the husband is put in a position of authority and held accountable by God himself and how that family is going to run. Some people think, well, I'm, a, I'm the wife. I can never say no to the husband. Oh, no, not true. Wife should distinctly say no to the husband if the husband causes her and asks her to go against the word of God. And for children... Is there a time when children are to say no to their authority of the, of, the, of the father and the mother? Yes, when the father and mother ask their children to go against the word of God, they have the ability to say no to mom and dad in that regards. And there are times that will happen. But we need to make sure that if you and I are going to resist authority, authority in the government, authority within the home, authority within the church, if there's any time where we're going to resist authority, you, have, you have better have scripture in context and rightly divided before you come there and go against authority. You don't go based on your feeling. You don't go based on perceptions. You go and you cannot justify your actions or back up your actions based on those feelings and based on perception if it is not scripturally grounded. You can't twist it to make it work for you. And then he sees, Paul says in verse 3, for rulers are not a, t a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So you look at these verses here, you can see very clearly, remember that God established the power of these positions, and God has established the person who enforces the position of power. They are God's ministers. God is using them to do his work. He's raised you as a father and a mother in a God's ministers to raise his children up that he's given you. But in the government, it's the same thing. God has raised people up to put them in the position of power to execute that power to keep people who want to practice evil and hurt others and go with chaos to bring them back into order through a method of punishment or execution. But therefore, if you are doing good, there is no reason for you to be afraid of authority, the scripture says. That's so common in our news today. Oh, I'm afraid of the officers, the law officers, the police. I'm afraid. You should not be. If you're doing nothing wrong, if you're doing good and you're out there doing what is right, why would you have a fear of authority? They're God's ministers, that God put them in position of authority and power to make sure there's, there's order. But the challenge we have is, according to the word of God, the person is truly there for our good, it says. Next time you see that police officer, that you should be thanking them for stopping you because somehow your car went 10 miles over the speed limit. You have no idea how that happened. But it must be something with a mechanics problem at the Honda dealership. No. You might have been a little distracted. We'll go with that one. It wasn't purposeful, I'm sure. But the next time they came up, you shouldn't have a heart of, oh, how dare he or she stop me? How could this be? He doesn't understand. Just say thank you for protecting me and protecting other people for going over the speed limit. You're God's minister. And you thank them. Try that one next time. See, law enforcement officers are God's ministers for good, for the protection of good people. They are also God's ministers to punish against those who practicing evil. See, they're a place in position of authority in society in keeping order and to use their weapon, their sword, not inappropriately, in vain, but according to stop evil from harming others. Why do we have a military? To push back evil, to keep them, to protect the people. God has put them in you in a position of authority as God's ministers to push back evil. Law enforcers are the same way. And God has given the sword to rulers. And with it, the authority to punish, even execute. You go back to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, you will see that God established before the law something that needs to be put into society for the benefit of the society. 
and it has not changed today, and that is capital punishment was ordained at that point in time and has not been abolished. The problem is, is our society, the rulers, took away capital punishment, and now you see the rippling effect of what has happened in society across the world. And once a nation or a society begins to walk away from punishment to those who do evil, the whole system becomes unraveled into lawlessness and evil darkness will reign. And that's what we're experiencing in our culture today. Paul then says, therefore, verse 5, you must be subject. Be submissive. Not only because of wrath, not because of the punishment that be coming, but also for the conscience sake. For your own conscience, you are to be submissive, to be to subject to the authority around you. We are to be subject to those who are placed in positions of authority, not only for safety's sake, but also for the sake of a clean conscience. When the law is right, when the law that has been established is good, the Christian must obey if he or she is to obtain a good conscience. You and I sleep very well as a Christian. When we are humbled, we're submissive to those in government leadership positions and officers of the law and within the family unit and within the church leadership structure. We sleep very well because we know we're doing what is good and right because that is what God has ordained. Even today, the United States government maintains a conscience, conscious fund for people who pay, who want to pay their debts to the government and yet remain anonymous. Did you know that? You can today sit there and go, you know, I've been cheating on my taxes for I don't know how long, and I am just can't live with myself anymore. God has revealed it to me. I have got to clear my conscience, but I don't know how to deal with that. The government has set up, even local government, a conscious fund where you can anonymously send the money that you know you owe the government and send it anonymously and let them know I'm clearing my conscience I'm making it right and when our conscience begins to work we cannot live with ourselves until we have made things right when your conscience is gnawing at you you know you said something you shouldn't say. You've done something you didn't do. Or you should have done something you didn't do. And your conscience is playing with you and say, I know that was right, but we've chosen to do something differently. Do not ignore your conscience. Because after a while, when you ignore your conscience and push back the Spirit of God stirring up your conscience, you can sever or harden yourself toward that voice in your conscience trying to make it right. In verse 6, Paul continues, says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Oh, isn't that a great conversation on Sunday? For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. You know, that's why we do verse-by-verse -verse teaching, because there's nothing you're not going to hear. <laughs> I'm not going to do topical teaching and dance around taxes, all right? Paul makes it clear, because God places people in positions of authority, we are to pay to support them in being God's ministers. 
That's why we do our ties to the church. That's why we, we contribute within the family. That's why we answer for the government. We pay taxes. We pay for those God is appointing to put in a position to protect us. Now, this is a big challenge for many of us. Because all of a sudden you sit there, are you telling me the IRS, these IRS agents are God's ministers? Are you kidding me? You see it in the newspaper. They're wicked. They've come against the churches and nonprofits. doesn't mean there's not bad kings and good kings. There's bad IRS agents and good IRS agents. I mean, but the position is still appointed. People have been still appointed. And God will take care of those who do not fulfill their positions honorably and rightly. God's going to deal with them. Vengeance is the Lord's, right? It's not us. It's the, it, God's going to deal with them. But yes, the IRS agents are, agents are actually God's ministers. And many may look at what is going on in the IRS and the corruption of this organization and come to a conclusion in their minds that says, we're going to rise up. We're going to be the, we're going to be the, the resistance and we're going to say, no, we're not paying our taxes because the IRS is coming against the church or coming against the nonprofit. That's not what God's called us to do. That's not how we're to react. Remember, Paul, during this time when he wrote this, had Caesar Nero, who was doing things and collecting taxes from the people and was doing ungodly, ungodly, unimaginable things within the society that day. Unbelievable. He wasn't out there raising up godly churches and godly, um, uh, you know, hospitals and, and, and educational systems and doing all these kinds of things for the good of the people. He was using it for his own personal gain and, and setting up wicked things going on, including abortions, including all these other the prostitution, all these other things were going on in this, this time of, of, of Paul. So we know that Paul didn't say to rise up against Caesar Nero. He says we have to pay the taxes. Pay your taxes. Just as Jesus said to him before, before Paul, back in Matthew twenty two twenty one. Jesus him said that we are to pay what is, goes to Caesar's Caesar's, and what is God is God's. And so those who resist the authority resist the ordinances of God that we see back in verse 2 that we just read. So we are to pay our taxes. Don't pay a dime more than you're supposed to. Follow the law. Use the law according to the law and do what is right. You don't have to pay more than you have to. But you need to pay what you're supposed to. In verse 7, he says, Paul rendered, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. We're to pay our taxes like income taxes. We're to pay our customs like sales tax on the things that we buy with their sales tax. Respect those who are in authority, who are overseeing this, and honor them who protect and serve us. That's what we're to do as Christians. Now we see not only the government that we're supposed to, as believers in society and how we're to work with our government, we see in verse 8, how believers in society are regarding our neighbor, those to the left and to right in front and around us. 
It says right here in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another also fulfilled the law. So we see here that Paul also includes in the circle of responsibility as believers in society to include other people besides government authorities, officials. And it says that we are to owe no one anything. Does that mean, and many people today will teach, that says that means you can never take a loan. You could never um, be in debt or have any owed to anybody. That's not what it says. If you keep it in context and understanding what he's saying here, he's saying do not take advantage of other people in, when it comes to people in need. Not only are we not to um, take advantage of people who come to you that you may have resources, God has blessed you and come to you, especially in those days, and ask for a loan or ask for something to help them in their time of need and say, sure, I'm happy to give some money to you. Not a problem. You can't get a loan from the bank downtown. I'll take care of you. And what's the bank charging you on the loan here? Oh, just four, three, four percent. Ah, not a problem. I know you're in a deep position. I know you're putting and you need it really quick because I'm here to help you. I'm only going to charge you 25 percent on the loan. No big deal. No, see, we're not to charge high interest rates on a believer. You should not be charging. You should be freely and lovingly want to give. They shouldn't be owing you their lives, their livelihoods to stay alive. We're to properly borrow from someone and, and have a loan from a bank that we need to purchase something. That's okay. But we should not be borrowing from someone or taking a loan from a bank with no intention of owing them back. Oh, I'm never going to give you that money back. You think I'm going to give you my, that piece of equipment that I let you borrow? You think I'm going to give that back? I'm just going to keep it because uh, I'm out of here. See, we should never do that. We should never be put in a position where we owe something back to someone that we borrowed or we said we were going to just borrow and we had no intention. We were, we were looking to take. Oh, you know, everyone does it. Buy the biggest house you can. Take the big old loan you can. I'm just going to live here for three or four or five years anyway, and I'll just give it back to the bank. I'll just let it go down. Who cares? I'm just going to be moving, taking off, and going everywhere. I'll just get it some other way. See, we are to never do that again. We should ever always have the intention to pay our debts. See, the love of God and for our neighbor is the highest motivational factor for obedience, and it is the principle, the basic principle of Christian life. We should not be taking advantage of our neighbor in regards to how we borrow or we receive from someone out of the kindness of our neighbor's heart. You're looking just to take and never to give back is, is wrong. You even see this in the lawyer who tested Jesus back in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. He asked him, he says, asked Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to, you, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, God just made a nice little summary for you and I who have very simple minds. He takes all the commandments and all the things, and he keeps it really simply. He says, basically, the law of God is simply summed up in love. If you really truly love someone, you won't take advantage of someone. You won't take from them. You are more likely to want to give to them. You're not expecting and demanding. You're looking to, to freely give and to love, to help, to encourage others. You're not having critical spirit about what they do or say. You have a, you have a heart and a mind of grace, and you give them room to, through their little mistakes and problems. They're still growing in their, in their walk with Christ. Even in John 13, 34, Christ gave us a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Are we loving one another? Or are you like the law? You have your do's and don'ts and critical spirits about you that you people should be acting and doing certain things a certain way, and it's according to your law, that legalistic attitude versus one of love, of grace. And so when we practice love, and it does take practice, it takes practice. You think you've got this love thing nailed down, oh, I'm a loving person, God has changed me. You, Corey, you have no idea the way I was before I came to Christ. Praise God. But guess what? You're going to continue to pra practice because God is, is going to orchestrate where you're going to be tested. <laughs> and you're going to have to begin really dig deep and ask the Holy Spirit to help and strengthen you to love even my neighbor. But when we practice love, there's no need for any other laws, are there? Because love covers it all. We will not sin against other people if we have got the love mastered. We don't have to worry about the law. We're not going to do anything that's going to harm other people. We have no intentions to doing it. And even Paul highlights, even in verse 9, for the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the Mosaic law that we see in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 11, is all about the negative. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. But look at what the New Testament, look at what, the, what God is saying here. It, Jesus is, is turning that negative into a positive note and says, love God and love one another. That's our emphasis. That's our focus. Test all things about what's coming out of your mouth. Oh, my, those loving words that are coming out of my, my mouth. I'm about to do this. Is it loving? If it's not, stop. Don't do it. No touchy. It's not loving God. It's not loving another. Don't do it. Because it's not about you not doing anything bad. It is all about letting God's love flow through your hearts others I didn't do anything bad 
I'm not doing anything bad. I won't do anything bad. No, no, no. What about God just flowing his love through you and doing good for others? What about that? That's the test. That's what, that's what we want to see. That's why we don't see in the Ten Commandments referred to very too often in the New Testament. Because as believers, we do not live under the law. We live under what? Grace. We live under grace. Not the law. Our motive for obeying God and helping others is the love of Christ in our hearts. That is why we do what we do. And be patient with other people. Because as you're really just with no strings attached, wanting to love and give to other people, that many people will go, wait, what's the strings attached to? I don't know if I'm comfortable with this love thing. You're, you're loving way too much. What's the catch? What do you look? Just be patient with them. They've never experienced love. They're used to people, people taking and taking and taking. Verse 10, love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, love does not want, what, love does what is right and just and seeks the best for others. Is not self-seeking. But our natural flesh, we do not have this kind of love. Our natural flesh is to take, it's selfish, it's, it's consuming, it just wants. We see that back in Titus 3.3. 3. But if you remember in Romans 5, we see that the Lord gives it to us, the love that we need in Romans 5, 5. Our flesh in Titus 3, 3 is all about self. And that is why Paul then finishes here in this part of the letter. Verse 11 he's in, in through 14, he then says, you know, as believers in society, there's order and there's authority. Just accept what I have and the people that are in those positions. Just be, 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 be it's, it's the right thing to do to follow the government rules and, re and regulations. It's also right to how you interact with your neighbors and how you love other people. But it's also, remember, it's all about, in verse 11 he says, and do this, do what? Do, follow the laws and, and be good to your neighbors, love God, love your neighbors. All that, do this knowing the time. That now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. This is why we're motivated, right? Because the time, the age we live in is drawing down. And Jesus is returning for his people. He's going to snatch out of here in a twinkling of an eye the church. And he's going to set up his new kingdom. Paul calls believers here in verse 11 to wake up. To wake out of your state of drowsiness, your lack of focus on the things of the kingdom of above. Your eyes are so focused on yourself and so focused on the world. Paul is saying to you and I, wake up, get out of your stupor here. Because Jesus is coming back soon and very soon for you. Do not be caught in your, sleepless, your sleeping state. Look around you at the world. Realize this age is coming to an end. You must do this now. Don't wait. But wake up. 
to the fact that your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. And as servants of God, we should be looking for our master's return. We want to be found faithful when Jesus returns for you and I. Do we not? That would be a yes, amen right there at that moment in time. Really? Every day we live brings us one day closer to Jesus' return for you and I and to take us to heaven. Now, from a theology perspective or a theology point of view on the word here, salvation, yes, it's true that the moment you open up your heart to Jesus Christ by faith alone, your salvation is complete eternally in you. But what Paul is talking about here also is true that when Jesus comes back, there will be a salvation externally. Our salvation of going home to heaven will be complete. All of his, his, his children, his brothers, his sisters, the church will be complete and our salvation will be complete externally. Everyone will see us. We'll be out of here in a blink of an eye. Equity and justice will reign once and for all in God's kingdom. Wickedness may reign and it will reign. But we will have equity and we will have justice with Jesus because he will be king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? Complete salvation, not only individually, but corporately. All of us as a family will be out of here, both internally and externally, is drawing near. And in verse 12, Paul says, the night is far spent. The darkness of the night has been going on long enough, people. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. That is not how as believers we are to walk. The days we live in are dark, yes. But Paul is saying here, and he says it to us today, praise God we are heading down the lit path that God has for us to a new day of sunrising. But what are we to do now? And until waiting for Jesus to come back in the cloud and rapture us out of here, what do we do now? Paul makes it very clear for you and I. First, in verse 11, he says, wake up. Get out of that sluggard state you're finding yourself in when regards to spiritual things. Sitting around doing nothing for God is not the right answer at this point in time. In verse 12, he says, dress up. Actually, put on the armor of light. That's an active motion for you and I. No one's going to dress you. You have to put on the armor of light. Be a light. Be salt out to this dark world that we're in. Which means you must take off the works of darkness. You must repent and turn around and walk away from those things. You and I have to make that decision. Because if you don't make that decision, you are part of the darkness. Thirdly, he, in verse 13, he says to clean up, to put away the, uh, the out-of-control partying, the rivalries, put away the drunkenness, crude sexual ways, the stench of anger and bitterness that's in you, the dirt of a resentment, discontentment that's on you. 
All of these are polluting and defiling you and I. If we allow that to stay in our lives, we've got to get rid of it. And God says he'll do the work. Let him do the work. But then God never sits there and tells us what we have to do, but not give us an answer to help us to do it. And we see through Paul in verse 14, get rid of all that stuff, but then put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the solution for you and I. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So lastly, the fourth thing is this. Grow up. Mature. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean practically for you and I today? It means to become more like him. It's to receive by faith all that he has for you in a daily life. That means you're seeking after him in the word and allowing him to speak to you and encourage you and show you what he has for you for that day. And we must make a decision daily to be believers in the society, not to be ones of darkness, but be ones of putting on armor of light and being light and salt in this dark world. And we make no provision for our flesh. That means if you have a problem with drunkenness, stop going to a bar and asking for the table closest to the bar. You're just setting yourself up for failure. You don't even have to get up. Oh, just give me another one. Stay away from the bar. Go into another part of the place and have the meal. If you have a problem with lust, do not have your computer, just you and I, you and the computer, right there at 1 o'clock in the morning, have free will to the porn. Set up no provision. Put guards on those computers and those phones. But no one's going to do that. You have to make that decision. That's what Paul is saying to you and I. And he was saying it back then there. Because they were dealing with the same issue. We will grow up healthy based on what we consume, what we eat on a daily basis. This is why God warns us not to make provision for the, for the flesh. We will die and we will fail if we consume the things that are unhealthy. Things we read, the things we watch, the places we go, the people we associate with. We are to feed the inner man the nourishing things of the spirit and we will live healthy and succeed. We will live victorious Christian lives. And let us close here. Let us remember today to live our life in humility, in obedience, thankfulness and gladness, with contentment, loving others. And we need to be about our Lord's business as believers in society. There is so much to be accomplished, my brothers and sisters. There's so much to be reaching out for the kingdom of God while we're here. And the time is so short for us as believers in this society. We're waiting for Lord Jesus to return for us. That is why we're still here as believers, is for us to share the good news to encourage each others in the faith and just be obedient to what God has called you to do while he, have, he has you here. Why? Because we're believers in society. Let us pray.